Amen. All right, let's go Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some uh, physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, man, we would uh, just absolutely love for you to take one of those home. The reason is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word, the Bible, the scriptures, whatever words you want to apply to it. Uh, we believe that he uses the Bible to teach us about himself. And he gives it for all kinds of other reasons too, but primarily to show us who he is. And we want you to know him. So if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one and, and uh, we'll count that as a win. Uh, so we kicked off last week a little short, relatively speaking, series uh, for us. Uh, normally we work through stuff months at a time, but uh, we're going to spend five weeks looking at what we're calling hashtag gospel. We call it time out in our normal series that we're working on for the year, the story of God, uh, to look at uh, how the gospel of Jesus Christ affects the way we look at and use and interact with things like social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those other icons up there, and then a thousand others that we don't have time to list and would have clogged up the logo, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so we, we looked last week, we, we kicked off this five-week little series to answer the question, how does the gospel of Jesus and what the gospel of Jesus does in us and through us and around us affect the way we look at and use these platforms, and, uh, and so uh, that doesn't for one second mean that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't affect everything else in your life, and it doesn't for one second mean that, that, that we believe that social media is the end-all, be-all of human existence. It's okay to not have a social media account. Uh, we're, we're very much okay with that. I know some of y'all don't and love that you don't, and that's okay, all right? And so uh, the first couple of millennia of human history got along fine without it. I don't think the last two decades have really changed anything, all right? Uh, but here's the deal. We discovered last week that whether you like things like Facebook or Twitter or you don't, whether you use those things or you don't, doesn't make a difference to the fact that those two things and others like it have absolutely massive influences in the world we live in today. And so in order to, to be the kind of Christian who walks upright in the world and knowledgeable what's in front of us and around us and all these kinds of things, we want to be people who are influencers instead of the ones who are being influenced. Right? And so uh, we, we thought it best to spend five weeks to look at this incredibly ubiquitous thing in our culture and say, okay, here's how the Christian ought to look at that. And if you choose not to, to, to participate in that afterwards, that's okay. That really is. We're not going to try to push you one way or the other uh, through the course of the series, but we want to, to put the cards on the table and say, well, how does a mature Christian navigate this? How does a mature Christian speak the gospel into these things? And so last week, we, we kicked off with the idea that, that for those who are followers of Jesus, that Jesus gives us a new identity. A new identity, or rather, he restores to us the identity that was ours all along before the fall, what we were created to walk in, that we are loved by and walking in relationship with a holy and infinitely good God. That we're created to be image bearers and vice regents of this creator king. We're created to find our position and our identity in who God has joyfully declared us to be. And for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have repented of sin and trust Jesus alone for salvation, the Bible says that God adopts us into his family as sons and daughters, is what we looked at last week. And so that, that begs a massive question in a social media saturated world, in a world that's full of our online identities. The question has to be asked, 
Why in the world would we ignore what God has claimed about us and instead chase after identity and affection and attention from a friends list? That's where we landed the plane last week. All right? Why would we chase after that kind of stuff? Because that's, the, that's pretty much the definition of a bad trade right there. And so that was last week, though. Y'all ready to jump into a new truth for this week? Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin looking in verse 11, uh, but before that happens, we need to lock down the context a little bit. The first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are, by every measure, my favorite part of the Bible. And if you had any sense in you, it would be your favorite part of the Bible too. Um, You're you're allowed to have something else, you're just wrong. No, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 are easily my favorite part of the Bible. Um, So last week we looked at Galatians 4, 4, and 5, and the Apostle Paul in there writes a a one-sentence haymaker explanation of the gospel. He packs clause after clause, comma after comma, of saying this is what the gospel is. These are the, the, the terms of the gospel. And what Paul did in one sentence in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, he now has a couple of paragraphs to work with. All right? And he uses those paragraphs well. And so in in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, he shows us our desperate need for a Savior and just how desperate our need actually is, right? He argues that we not only have been deceived by an enemy, Satan, you remember Genesis 3 last week that we looked at? not Not only have we been deceived, but we also are guilty all on our very own of sin. In fact, it's hardwired all the way down deep in our core. It's buried into our DNA. That each one of us rages against the idea that God would be Lord and boss over our lives instead of ourselves. That that we all want to be king. We all want to be the captain of our destiny. And anyone who stands in the way of that, including God himself, better realize how wrong they are and get out of our way. That's That's our default orientation towards God. So let me walk us through something just real quick that I think is commonly misunderstood about the gospel of Jesus. To be labeled a sinner does not mean that we are guilty of a few bad things. As if God's standing on the edge of heaven with a clipboard and a checklist making sure we don't fall into the naughty list somehow. Well, that one's a little taboo. I'll let this one slide. Uh, That one I can't allow in here. That's not what God's doing. In the economy of God's kingdom, in the economy of God's kingdom, we have rejected God's authority over our lives and we have questioned the wisdom and the character of the eternal king. The political term for that kind of action is treason. So metaphorically speaking, we have intentionally and repeatedly spit in the face of the wisest and kindest and bravest and most gracious king the universe will ever know. Naughty list is not a high enough view of the problem. And so with a deep sense of love and concern for you, I want to play the pastoral role and gently, gently point out the fact that if you scoff at the idea of the wrath of God, it is not because something unfair has happened. It's because you see your sin too smallly, too tiny. You see God too small, and you see yourself too highly. All day, every day. That's 
what the gospel is calling to us. And that's what Paul begins to unfold in the first 10 verses, or the first three verses, really, of Ephesians chapter 2. To, to begin to read the Bible correctly is to walk away with the unshakable realization that you deserve God's righteous punishment for sin. You. Me. Not, in a, not a, a, an unnamed someone else or, or collective us. I deserve righteous punishment. But that's only the way you begin a correct reading of the Bible because verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, we see the world get turned upside down. Because instead of the infinitely lovely and righteous king doing what is perfectly just and annihilating those unruly usurpers of his throne, Paul instead spells out that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love and he tells us that through the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection, that God takes those who are spiritually dead and he makes them spiritually alive instead. That we are not simply forgiven, we are invited to sit at his feet and be loved by him eternally. And so like we talked about last week, we, had, we are adopted as sons and daughters. And with it, it's with this in mind that we now get to look at our text for this morning. Look at verse 11. Therefore, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so we looked at this text all the way back in October uh, when we, we walked through a whole series on the book of Ephesians. And so back in October is when we looked at this specific text. And so if you're the type that wants a, a deeper exposition of the text, we've actually done that recently. You can go find it in our podcast archives. It's on the website. It's on iTunes. Have a great day. All right, but, but for our purposes this morning, allow me to fly through it a little more quickly. Paul starts out by saying, therefore, based on everything I just rattled off about the gospel in the first 10 verses, uh, because uh, we, have, we were separated from God both by, by deceit and by, by character, by nature, right? because we were separated from God, but God reconciles us to himself. Paul says, therefore, he takes the next logical step in this little, little argument that he's making. He says, therefore, what? Remember. He says, remember that at one time you were Gentiles and uncircumcised. What does that mean? Well, if you're new to the Bible, those aren't polite words for Paul. In fact, they're terms of derision or insult. The Jewish culture of the time saw you as, as two categories of people. The whole world is two categories of people, Jews and not Jews. They called them Gentiles. The Jews had a, a physical marking on their body called circumcision to identify them as God's people, as the ones who had God's law. They had God's blessing. They had God's law. They had the future promised by God to be forever His. And then everybody else, well, they, they were just everybody else. You had the people who were the insiders, and then you had everybody else who were the outsiders. Outsiders of the commonwealth of Israel, Paul says, and to use his word in verse 12, they had no earthly hope of ever being anything other than that. God was working through the Jews, and then, well, then you just had everybody else. So not only was there a sin issue, 
that separated from them from God, but for the Gentiles, the audience of Paul's letter here, there was also this extra cultural barrier that stood in the way. Their non-Jewishness. And it prevented them from even having access to what was necessary in order to come to salvation. They didn't have the possibility in front of them by this point in the story. The Jews had God's law, they had God's promises, and everybody else, they were just in the dark. They were just in the dark. But then there's a giant three-letter word at the beginning of verse 13. But. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, so there is separation between us and God and for the Gentiles, me included, there is separation between each other, all right? And the Bible teaches that as Jesus reconciles us to himself, he also reconciles us to each other. So how does that work? Well, like the points on a triangle being drawn towards the top, right? We get a whole lot closer together. And so we said all the way back in October, and I'm willing to stand by that claim today too, that, that when the church of Jesus is doing and being what God has designed his church to do and to be, it is the only thing in a society that has any real hope of bringing two completely different groups of people together. The only thing. Well, wait a second, Woodard. That seems incredibly audacious. How, how could you possibly think that? It's easy. Because uniting around anything man-made, no matter what that thing is, cannot last. As long as anything less than eternal is the star around which everything else revolves, it's got a shelf life. That's how the universe works. That's why our best man-made efforts at peace may work for a season, but they will never work as long as we want them to, and they will always fall apart in the end. Always. No eternal thing is made for the marathon. Non-eternal things are built for the sprint, not for the marathon. But Jesus is a marathon kind of God. And so Paul in Ephesians 2.14 points to Jesus and he says, for he himself, Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus unites us to himself. And so if I'm reconciled to Jesus and you're reconciled to Jesus, then anything else that might divide us ultimately and immediately moves to the back burner. That's what Paul is saying here. Not because those things are never important or never have any value, but well, because they can only ever be temporary. We need to put them on the back burner because to define ourselves by those things is to define ourselves by something that can't last very long. And to cling to temporary communities for our, one, our 80 to 100 years 
may seem like a long time, but to do so at the detriment to our one solitary eternal community? Well, it's not, a, not exactly a smart idea. Katie and I have a couple of preschoolers living in our house right now. One day they'll be gone. We're happy they're here now, but, man, my wife is forever. Kids are going to leave. And we have preschoolers in our house right now, which means Paw Patrol's our jam at the moment. They've got other things that they love, but, man, if you get them started on a Paw Patrol conversation, immediate community, right? If my kids find out that you know who Mayor Goodway and Chickaletta are, they will talk for hours. Hours. They, they can play the Paw Patrol game. Uh, they can watch the shows for hours on end. As long as we will allow them to, they're going to do the Paw Patrol thing. They can talk the Paw Patrol thing for hours and hours and hours. And, and if you're dumb enough to actually bring that up, that'll be the thing that they want to talk about every time they see you from now on. But there's coming a day when they're going to outgrow that, right? There's coming a day when, when they're going to outgrow that. They'll move on to a different obsession and a different community. And, and, and listen, those of us who, who have lived enough life know that even further down the line, they'll, they'll, they'll fade out of that one too and find something else. That's how life works. We were created for community, and it is a natural thing. God has built into us to seek out community around the things that we enjoy and identify ourselves with. That is good and right. We've been hardwired for it. There's nothing wrong with my kids adoring Paw Patrol right now. But if my kids burn all their family relationships, all those bridges down, in order so that they can enjoy a few months of the Paw Patrol crowd, well, that's, that's going to make the next several years of family gatherings kind of awkward, right? It's going to make it pretty awkward. If they scorn their mommy and daddy in order to pursue community, even in what they think they identify best with right now, at the expense of the community that will actually last their whole lives? The Paw Patrol community can be a good thing, but only if it takes a back seat to the far more important family community that God has given them, right? But here's the deal. That analogy breaks down in a couple of absolutely massive ways. One, my three-year-old and my five-year-old are immature, right? Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> they don't know any better. They don't know any better. They don't understand anything yet of the long term or of loving people through the mundane, everyday motions of life. They don't, know, they don't have enough maturity in the tank yet to, to come anywhere close to understanding or comprehending that, that their mommy and daddy love them far deeper and far more effectually than anything Paw Patrol will ever give them. But we're all mature enough to know better, Right? Right? There's a second way, though, that it, that analogy breaks down, and it's that a couple of months for the life of my kids compared to their whole lifetime is still way too small of a comparison to your 80 or 100 years in comparison to all of eternity. That little couple of months that they're into the Paw Patrol scene in comparison to their lives is nothing compared to your lifetime held up against God's plan for eternity. 
So I'll say it again, to cling to temporary communities, even if those communities are your whole lifetime. To cling to those communities at the detriment of your eternal one, the one Jesus places you into, well, that's just a bad investment. Bad investment. That's why you've heard other pastors in other places make the audacious claim that that for the follower of Jesus, a non-Christian on the other side of the planet, even generations removed from you, has more in common with you than with you with to you than the person who looks like you and talks like you and thinks like you living right next door to you. It's not because those other things that you can identify with and draw community around aren't valuable and don't have a purpose. That doesn't mean they're inherently bad. It just means those things have a shelf life. They will not last forever. And the more you train yourself to see that reality with eternal eyes, the clearer that picture becomes to you. The clearer the picture becomes. So what does this have to do with things like social media, right? I mean, I thought this was a social media series or about Facebook or something. Aren't we spending a lot of time talking about gospel realities instead of you know, social media realities? You're right. Mwahaha. I told you last week that I was going to give you one big idea and one frank statement. So what's the big idea this week? Social media in all of its forms, no matter which one you prefer, you pick, have fun. Social media in all of its forms, the entire point is to manufacture community. That's what they do. Although they were to sell you stuff, yes, but they do that by making community, making you feel like you belong and making you have a sense of, of, of community there, right? That, that, that's what they do. That's how they sell you stuff. And so not only do you have the whole community of the platform, but you also have these little smaller clusters within that community, right? Whether that's groups or pages, top friends, snap chains, or just, I mean, the list could go on and on, right? What they're doing is they are gathering you into tribes, They're gathering you into tribes. Some of those subgroups are built around giant things like political parties. Many of them are built around much smaller things like maybe what your favorite band is or just the five or six people that you talk to most out of an entire friends list. But they're gathering you into tribes. And every platform out there is attempting to manufacture community. It's what they do. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been placed in a community already. You've been placed in a community that should easily trump any kind of manufactured social tribe that a social media platform attempts to sell you. They take a back seat, an immediate back seat. So follower of Jesus, you have been reconciled to God. You have been reconciled to others, and it has eternal ramifications. Eternal ramifications. You've got a community that's, that's global, that stretches across every generation until the, the return of Jesus, but you've also got a community that's local, right? It's been given to you for your good. A community, a place to know and be known, a place to serve and be served. And while it may be filled with a bunch of folks who don't look like you or think like you, and while some of those folks may be really difficult at times to love, the reality that we've got to lock down this morning is that we're family, y'all. An eternal one. An eternal one. And so while there may be other tribes that you could identify with, some of those goods, maybe some of those not so goods, maybe some of them are great. Well, there could be other tribes that you, that you could 
identify with, both inside and outside of this room, there's only one community of, that lasts forever. There's only one community for the follower of Jesus that lasts forever. And so steward your relationships wisely. Steward your relationships wisely. But I also promised you a frank statement this week. So what is it? You ever going to grow tired of chasing after the virtual facade of an online community? Like, like how much energy you got left? A community that will never last and can't actually satisfy, can't ever actually give you what it promises? When are you going to try going to give up trying to be seen online as part of this group or that group, whether it's the, the political savvy crowd or the intellectual crowd or the alternative crowd or the perfect mommy crowd, whatever your crowd is. We talked about identity last week, that, about longing to be seen in this way rather than that way. Listen, the communities we chase after, whether that's online or offline, the communities we chase after, that's just an extension of that longing in our heart. We're chasing after to be known and to be seen or to want to be seen in these ways. For those who are, those who are followers of Jesus, you have a community that's otherworldly already sitting at your fingertips. Sitting at your fingertips. So quit chasing after the cheap stuff. Those things aren't inherently bad. They're just the knockoff of the real thing. They're the generic brand. <laughs> We're not anti-social media here. I have accounts on multiple platforms. The church has accounts on multiple platforms. Platforms aren't the problem. But like, but like every other created thing out there, every other created thing out there in this world, our sinful hearts have a bent, a sinful propensity to take a good thing and turn it into a God thing. It's what we do. John Calvin once said, our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. We just pump them out of us. When we lean on and blindly pursue connection and community in those places, all while ignoring or downplaying the much better thing that Jesus has seen fit to give you, well, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. And if you're anything like me, you can be guilty of chasing after those kind of things too every once in a while. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to those of us who, like myself, have run to other communities for relationship and for identity and for belonging and completeness? And should I keep going? <laughs> Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, that means Jesus' death on the cross paid the debt of your sin, even the times when you like, stupidly chase after lesser things. He paid for that sin, right? And so your response is to repent of that sin and press into the God who loves you and calls you his own. He has adopted you into his family and you now have eternal brothers and sisters. So let's get going. And that means that your second response is to press into the church family that he's seen fit to give you. Listen, it, if this ain't it, because he's given you one, and if this isn't it, well, that means somewhere else is. 
And in love for you, I'm going to tell you, go there. We love visitors here. Like, I, I hope I can get to shake your hand a little bit later. We love visitors here. But the Bible seems to teach that, that God has given us the church body to be known and to know others, to serve and to be served. And hanging out on the fringe robs yourself. It robs you. And so if it ain't here, that means somewhere else is. We want to help you get there. Because we want you to walk de- as deeply as Jesus is calling you to walk. So press into the community that God has put in front of you as deeply as you can. And if it's here, jump in with both feet and we'll run this race together. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would, be, uh, that would serve you well this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I say it every week. Man, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I'm glad you're here. We talked a lot today about a community that you don't belong to. Yet. But we can fix that. How do we fix that? Let me tell you how. The community is built around the shared reality that Jesus has declared us for himself. And without him, we are guilty of our sin that we talked about earlier. And we deserve the punishment from God that is awaiting us. Or like uh, Jim sang about, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Listen, that wrath belongs to us, but Jesus sacrificed himself on for us. Jesus pays the debt uh, that our sin on, of our sin on the cross by dying on our behalf. And his resurrection from the dead is not only proof that the debt has been paid in full, but also that he unites us to himself and to each other. We get to be with God. And the Bible says that all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what does that mean? It means that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, right? Which is a massive thing because he kind of claimed a lot of things about himself. Claimed to be God and all and Lord of sovereign rule over all of creation and then showed that he could do that. And so believing that Jesus is exactly who he says he is is a big step. We get that. It also means believing that, that Jesus has done exactly what he says he's come to do, dying on our behalf. And so just little stuff. But all of those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so believe that this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Maybe today's the day that you want to take that step of following Jesus. I'll be down here in the front to talk with you and pray with you if that's something that would help you this morning. Well, let's all respond to God's word today. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for community. God, you've created us for community. We find community in so many places, and most of those places are really good things. But give us eternal eyes. Help us to see that there are things that last and things that don't, and that give proper authority and voice in our life and our heart to those things. God, thank you for the tool of social media. Help us use it well. Help us use it well. May we find ways to to foster real community rather than the virtual stuff. God, help us press into your church this morning. Warts and all. We got a lot but it is an eternal family. So draw us to yourself. Draw us to each other. 
tear down the dividing wall of hostility that sometimes pops up, like Paul said. Help us to see each other the way you see us. God, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you yet, would you draw them to yourself? Instant family right there. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.